Oh my God, it is Friday, the 3rd of July, and welcome to The Way It Is, the official Bobby Galinsky podcast. As you would know, this is your official Bobby Galinsky. Although, over the past couple of months, I've seen some other Bobby Galinskys popping up on Facebook, not just the one I knew in New York and not one in London, stuff like that. And you see them on Facebook and social media and stuff like that. Um, it's really disconcerting. There's no doppelganger effect here. <laughs> These guys are really creepy. Uh, so, you know, make sure you get the, the official. If you're not listening to this podcast with that little icon of me, that thumbnail, drawn by the amazing Alistair Hardiman, then, um, you know, it's like buying uh, Kohl's brand or Albertson's brand in the U.S. or Tesco brand, you know, margarine. You're just not getting the real thing. Get the, get the you know, full churn, full cream, unsalted butter right here, like Maria Schneider with the Bobby Galinsky podcast. Film reference, millennials will never get, um, but Marlon Brando would if he was around to accept it, which he wouldn't, and he would have, you know, Catherine Littleflower grab it for him. More references. We're just we're just delving into the past today. It is bucketing rain and cold here. This is the kind of Melbourne winter that we expect, and uh, it's nice to be bunkered down here in beautiful Bayside. Melbourne, looking out the window, watching the rain come down. Got my little candle lit here next to my crystal. Crystal? Yes, it emanates great energy and just brings in the power right into my office here. Um, although I kind of, I don't even like to call it an office because I'm like semi-retired or um, my wife would like to think officially retired. So it's hard to call it an office because um, an office connotates business. Although I still do, you know, this and that, coach some people, speak here and there, and uh, this podcast, but uh, it's more of a den than an office, a den of iniquity, uh, as well as my music room with my guitars and drums and keyboard. So really, if I had a refrigerator and a bar in here, there'd be no reason to ever leave this room. Well, there is, because I'm married. But uh, my wife could come into the room. She could stay here. We'll see that. We'll see that when we uh, downsize and I lose this room. Anyway, um, I hope you've had a great week. I may be sounding different to you. I can already hear it in my voice. I can hear the temperance of age creeping into my formerly dulcet tones and uh, making me a bit raspy because I had a birthday as loyal listeners would know, and um, just about to open a beautiful gift from um, the solicitor to the stars, attorney to the gods, David Littlejohn, who bought me a lovely birthday present, which I'm opening a bit late, so I can just make it last. I'd like to have my birthday last a month. When I grew up in Iowa, in Sioux City, it was lovely having a birthday right in the middle of summer right just before the 4th of July, right before celebrating independence and great history, uh, back when America had history and law and order, and, uh, you know, you could shoot a rioter the way it's supposed to be. But um, we'll be getting into that in about about midway through the show. And uh, I kind of miss that. Miss shooting rioters? No. I was like, you know, six years old. But miss growing up in the summer, because a summer birthday outside, uh, my mom would dress the, the little wooden table that we had with, you know, fancy paper, and there'd be party hats and cake, and the best birthday cakes from Sioux City Bakery, a guy named Le Sid Lazier, long gone. I remember my fourth birthday. You could tell I really focus on this birthday thing a lot. Yeah, I do. Um, as do most insecure narcissists, but uh, at that time when you first get to be the center of attention. But on my fourth birthday, Sid Lazier of Sioux City Bakery baked a cake in the shape of a cruise ship. Now, this was no small cruise ship. This was like 
the size of a small boat. It was amazing. And it's not because I have such a great memory, which I do, but because my dad shot copious, copious Kodachrome slides. And we used to sit around with the carousel projector. Does everyone remember the carousel projector? Kodak? Remember Kodak? Things from the past. Remember, you know, Magellan, Columbus, um, you know, Davy Crockett, Kodak. And uh, we'd sit around and we'd look at slides and stuff like that. And I just remember seeing pictures of that that boat cake. I love cake. And on Wednesday morning on my birthday, my wife and I, under her supervision, she's a master baker, baked a amazing, fucking amazing, I'm sorry, there's no other way to put it, passion fruit sponge cake. And oh, man, did I dine out on that. If I don't have diabetes now, then I'm safe for life because that was a sweet feast and a beautiful, beautiful green Thai chicken curry, which we made. So um, instead of going out and sitting in a restaurant full of people, oh, why? Because there are no restaurants full of people, thanks to Unterscharfuhrer Dan Andrews, who is locking everything back down again. And uh, restaurants are just dying here. Don't worry about people starving in the Congo or South Sudan. One, they don't contribute to our economy. Two, they haven't had food there in 5,000 years. And do you think that's going to change? No. So don't worry about them. Worry about us. Worry about the restaurateurs and bar owners and baristas that are not going to have money for themselves, let alone the pass on to their children, let alone for their children, the pass on to their grandchildren. The, uh, the end of the universe is around the corner. Thanks to our good friends in China, we're going to have to pay for it. But just like we blew out the candles on my birthday cake, we're going to blow out China and make them pay. But uh, I want to focus on the good stuff. So thank you for all your lovely messages. The uh, 86,243 um, people who sent in their photos, listening to the podcast. How do you listen to Bobby selfies? And, um, you know, it took a staff of hundreds, hundreds of unemployed Democratic National Party staffers and ALP branch staffers, um, branch stackers, here in Victoria, they go through all the photos and entries. But my wife, the boss, and Stefan, the Siamese cat, and myself as the tiebreaker, like John Roberts on the Supreme Court, except I have ethics and a brain, uh, we've come up with a winner. And it was very, very tough. And we're going to announce that later in the podcast. This is like that bait and switch you see on TV, like on 60 Minutes, where they announce some huge reveal or, or something that's absolutely life-changing or, you know, um, Princess Diana back from the dead or Harvey Weinstein on speaking to or something you can't miss. And they make you wait till the end of the show. And it's actually not what they, they did. It's bait, it's bait and switch. It's, it's all, uh, you know, fake news. Kind of like some of the headlines in most newspapers these days, or kind of like all the news in the Washington Post or the New York Times. But uh, we're going to reveal it. We just kind of want you to listen and enjoy. We've got an action-packed show today. We're going to be talking about Mrs. Robinson. How many of you saw The Graduate? Let's see. see, uh, Raise your hands. All right, that's most of you. Well, Charles Webb, who inspired The Graduate, died. But he isn't the type of person you'd think is the type of Hollywood person who'd written The Graduate. Um, He actually gave away the copyright to his novel, The Graduate, which was the basis for the 1967 film with Dustin Hoffman. And there's a beautiful, beautiful tribute from Steve Marble, who's a brilliant writer at the LA Times, talking about it. And I am going to give you some of the emotional highlights. And we're going to talk about cancel culture and why it's become so incredibly cruel. It is worse, worse than the McCarthy hearings in the 50s in the U.S. And uh, yes, we've got a bit of a private agenda today. We're going to talk about growing anti-Semitism, especially in the press and in social media, and absolute 
horrific, moronic uh, tweets with people like Chelsea Handler, um, an, almost, an almost celebrity who retweeted an interview with Phil Donahue, who used to have a TV show that had merit, with Louis Farrakhan. Louis Farrakhan, the most virulently anti-Semitic um, black pseudo-preacher in America, saying that all Jews are termites and, uh, you know, ministers of Satan and should be destroyed. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. It, it puts an absolute stain on, on anybody that uh, thinks the guy has merit. And so not only did Chelsea Handler tweet that video and saying, oh, um, you know, this looks pretty accurate. But then when she was confronted by zillions of people going, how can, how can you do that? It's just like Hitler says, oh, oh no, Louis, you know, Minister Farrakhan must have been oppressed um, by Jewish people early on. Hence, that's where this comes from. Give me a break. Blame the Jews for everything. And uh, the only difference she made with him and Hitler is, oh, Hitler went ahead and killed six million. Um, Mr. Farrakhan hasn't killed anybody. He's just speaking out. Can you believe this exists today? Can you believe it? And the tweet was liked by Jessica Chastain and uh, a number of other Hollywood celebrities, just, you know, which completely freaks me out. And uh, it was taken down a couple days later without explanation. Usually when someone takes down a horrific tweet, well, they made a mistake. Sometimes people don't look at the whole context of things and they tweet, um, although this was inexcusable. Um, then they say, oh, sorry, but, you know, nothing. So uh, we'll talk more about that uh, more about that later. But getting back to my birthday, as I said, 1st of July, and my mom would lay out the spread in our backyard on Valley Drive. And we had terraces, and usually be on the second terrace. So that kind of elevated almost a dais out in the green, green, soft carpet of grass, which had been mowed just before the party. And you know the only thing missing? Friends. And do you know why? Gosh, Bobby, didn't you have any friends? Well, I had some friends. I, was, I, I had plenty of friends. But they were all gone at summer camp or at Lake Okaboji or Camp Herzl or, or someplace like that because my birthday fell in the middle of summer and everyone was on holiday. So it was very difficult scouring up enough friends to have, you know, a serious party, which meant, you know, lots of cake and ice cream and gifts and things like that. So never forget that. Sometimes you had to scour up a couple of, um, you know, B-listers and C-listers from, you know, beyond Blackstone and Summit Street and Sunset Circle and, you know, some of the uh, the outer limits of my friend circle to just get a, a minion, a quota going. But there were some of the hardcore followers you know, early followers that, uh, you know, are they're listening to the podcast now. They've been listening to me talk shit since, you know, 1955. And it hasn't gotten any better. So uh, I miss that. As opposed to my wife, who's born in December and is from the UK. So she was used to an icy cold Christmassy kind of, you know, birthday with, you know, sometimes snow, but certainly cold and Christmas lights and things like that. So she sits here now in in Melbourne when, you know, it's absolutely boiling. And uh, so we've swapped. We've inverted. We've gone through the complete reciprocal double flip half gainer Venn diagram, 180 degrees, double 360 transition morph of swapping birthdays. And that's just kind of the way it is. But uh, it's kind of a nondescript one, 67. Because then there's 68. Then there's 69. And, you know... Then there's 70. 70 is serious. 70 is serious. If this podcast is still going, God willing, when I'm 70, if we even have civilization, God willing, when I'm 68 left, the way we're going, then uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Um, now, this is a big day. This is a very big day. Uh, today in history... George Washington, father of the U.S., I want to say father of our country. We do, for our new listeners, I am a dual citizen, American and Australian, but I have a huge amount of uh, U.K. affinity from both the birth of English-speaking civilization, 
Bring the Magna Carta. Maybe somebody will tear that down and burn it. Uh, I'm sure someone will from Antifa. And uh, George Washington, father of our country, on this day in 1754, surrendered to the French. Surrendered. I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that. At Fort Necessity, the Seven Years' War. However, that same George Washington, in 1775, on the same day, took command of the Continental Army at Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, I don't know if George Washington looked at his calendar that day, you know, flipped up the iPad iPad, and goes, hmm, wow, okay, 3rd of July. Fuck, 3rd of July. This was a bad day for me in 1754. i got to turn this around. I'm not sure. But in 1861, it was a good day. The Pony Express arrived in San Francisco with the first overland letters from New York. So, you know, if you get the shits that your email doesn't go out or, you know, UPS delivers your parcel to, you know, the MS-13 Gonzalez family down the street and you never see it again, imagine waiting for Pony Express letters. That was huge. And then two years later, the Battle of Gettysburg, the largest battle ever fought on the American continent, still but maybe not in a few years, but still ends in a major victory for the Union during the U.S. Civil War. And you know what? There were a lot of people in that Civil War that had statues torn down, and a couple that were for the Union that have had statues torn down. We'll get into that, too. We try and keep the happiness early on. But my favorite day was June 3, 1871, when Jesse James robbed a bank in Corridan, Iowa, $45,000, which at that point was the largest bank robbery in Iowa history. And I grew up in Iowa, and I have NFI where Corridan, Iowa is, but I'll look it up. Also on this day, how many of you drive a Mercedes-Benz? Well, Carl Benz drove the first automobile in 1886 on this day and in 1928. It's funny how certain days just resonate in history. You know, there's some days that don't and some do. So... Don't tell me that there's a synchronous, not a synchronous connection on the astrology of certain days in history and why certain things tend to repeat themselves. Certain days are predominant for battles. Certain days are predominant for inventions. Certain days are um, predominant for uh, the arts. But in 1928, John Logie Baird demonstrated the first color TV transmission in London. Now, that kind of means a bit to me because my dad, my late dad, Milton Galinsky, worked for RCA during the war, World War II, and helped develop color TV while at RCA way back in the 40s. So we had a color TV when I was a very young kid, which was the only one on Valley Drive to have a color TV. And I do remember vividly, my dad was very, very demure about things. He was not flashy. He didn't wear jewelry. He didn't wear fancy clothes, even though my mom tried to, to dress him because he used, he used to dress like a, a retarded golfer, um, you know, different kinds of plaids and and things like that. He used to make a joke, kind of a Don Rickles joke about how he dressed that you can't make anymore. Well, you can, but you probably shouldn't, especially this week, but I might tell it later, but you'll figure it out. Um, but anyway, he was subtle. He was demure. But when we got this amazing RCA Color TV. And we were the first ones on the street with Color TV. And it only got one channel, and that was Channel 4, NBC, because they were the only ones broadcasting in color. He put the box out, and the box was the size of a battleship. It was absolutely ginormous. He put it out on the front of the street for garbage collection day, facing out the big peacock, so that anybody driving up and down the street would have seen, whoa, that household has color TV. And uh, I just, uh, my mom used to always remark about that. Um, we would call that wanker factor down here. Um, a little bit of show off. And he was very, very proud of that. Very, 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 very proud of that. Uh, today you put out something like that, you know, a new Apple you know, computer or any type of high tech, uh, you know, put it out on the street. And, um, you know, you'll have, you'll have the gang from... Uh, sunshine here breaking into your house in 10 seconds but uh and lastly in 1944 one of my all-time favorite films from the master billy wilder double indemnity 
film noir starring Fred McMurray. Oh, you know, most people know him from My Three Sons, but Double Indemnity, what a portrayal. And Barbara Stanwyck, who was hot in a really, really uh, conservative way. Uh, not the Big Valley, but, uh, you know, Double Indemnity. And that was released in Baltimore, Maryland, which now um, has no cinemas, and I don't think even has any stores left after the past couple of weeks. So that's uh, Today in History. Heaps. Heaps, mate. Heaps. Now, before we go into our first feature story, which will be about the passing of Charles Webb, I do want to touch one more thing on birthdays. Why all this birthday stuff? I really love milestones. I love birthdays. I love anniversaries. Um, you know, just moments in time that um, most people can remember. Because when you look back on your life, you might say, oh, I remember, uh, I remember hearing that song for the first time or dancing with that girl or guy for the first time. Here's what happened. We associate sounds or music or movies or anything with high points or regrettably low points in our life and um as a kid in iowa birthdays were a big thing so for those of you that grew up without the ability to celebrate that sad for you sorry but this is a story that has to be told because it's so epic especially if you knew my late father when he turned 60 we got a cake that would have been one of the last cakes from Sioux City Bakery. Um, and that would have been in the 60s or early 70s. And we were sitting in the kitchen in Sioux City. And my mom was about to put the candles on the cake. And it was luscious, big, you know, double-tier cake with uh, lots of frosting. Our family likes frosting. We like sugar. And I went and I, I had prepared this. And those of you that knew my father knew that he had an extremely hair-trigger AK-47 violent temper. He was not a violent man, but he would yell and scream at the drop of a hat. It was quite frightening. He only hit me a couple of times, but his voice, his shouting scared the living daylights out of me. I lived in fear and love. But of course, love comes naturally. Fear is earned, and we earn the fear. But nevertheless, sitting down there, it's a happy time, birthday, about to light the candles, and I sniff the cake, and I go, you know, and I'm like, you know, 13 or something. Geez, Mom, can, can frosting go stale? And she goes, well, it does have butter in it. And I sniff it again, and I go, wow, something's seriously wrong with that cake. And lo and behold... My father pulled the cake towards him and bent over it and sniffed the cake. And my brother, who's seven years older, looked over in horror because he could see what was coming, but he could not believe it. It would be like, you know, throwing that kid off, you know, the balcony at the Tate Gallery. This is not going to happen. And I pushed the back of my father's head really hard and smashed his face in the cake up to his ears. He came up. <laughs> he came up. With completely immersed in frosting, but swinging, swinging, he would have he would have knocked anybody out. He would have knocked my mom out. He was so upset. He steamed that uh, frosting off his face. He was so fucking upset. Anyway, I just I just had to share that. Oh my god, because it was so epic, and really had to know my dad and his temper to appreciate what a powerful, powerful move. That is, it was not as bad a move as when my mom got my brother and I confused and said, oh, Andy, oh, Andy, you know, I would always yell. And I had an older brother named Steve that died when he was eight from leukemia before I was born. And it was kind of like a non-mentioned thing, but uh, it was kind of always there. And I was having a bit of an argument with my mom at the time, and I looked over her and I said, well, Look at Andy and look at me. There's only two of us now. It shouldn't be that hard to not get confused. And she started crying. That was the last time I ever did something like that. I know, I'm not a bad guy. It was just you have to test the limits. As a kid, you have to test the limits of what's funny and not with your parents. Or satiric. Satire didn't go so well that day. But let's move on to, not the satire, but the drama. 
I know most of you have seen The Graduate, one of the most important movies of all time. Absolutely amazing. Now, Charles Webb passed away this week. He was 81. He inspired the classic. He wrote the film, and the original book that he wrote was picked up and optioned and adapted to film, and he got $20,000 for the film rights. And he gave the copyright of his novel to the Anti-Defamation League because he admired the group's work by saying, when you run out of money, it's a purifying experience, he told the Times of London, just after he abruptly left L.A. and moved to Brighton, England, with his wife Eve. The story told by the amazing Steve Marble from the Los Angeles Times in the uh, obituary homage. But what's so important about that is that Webb's life, you could say descended from that point, but I think in a way it, it transcended. He didn't go to book signings. He didn't go to speaking engagements. He worked stocking shelves at a Kmart and cleaned hotel rooms. And he cooked late-night meals at a diner, and he managed a nudist colony. He was an enigma to the end, and he died on the 16th of June in Eastbourne, which is a seaside town in southeast England. The Graduate had been an immediate immense box office success when it was released in 67 with Dustin Hoffman, who was then an emerging star. He was cast as... um, young Benjamin Braddock. He was the uh, young college graduate who returns home filled with disillusionment and uncertainty. And uh, I was only 14, but I was on the cusp of high school and thinking about college. And it um, was a very formative film for me. It had a lot of issues that, as a, as a teenager, were just immense, especially since I was still a virgin. And this was a guy first experience, and with a much older woman played by Anne Bancroft, who was nominated for her, for an Oscar. Anne Bancroft married Mel Brooks. Now, if there wasn't a stranger pair, what could be? What an amazing marriage that turned out to be. Anyway, Buck Henry, one of the coolest people ever, wrote the screenplay, and he said that Webb's novel was so crispy and spot on that 85% of the script was lifted straight from the book, although that absolutely epic line when... Um, Benjamin, played by Dustin Hoffman, is confronted by the pool, has no idea what he wants to go into. And uh, one of his family friends says, I got one word for you, plastics. Now, remember, this is 1967, so plastics was a relatively new technology. It would be like saying today, Tesla. And quoting Morris Dixon, an English professor at City University of New York, he had told the Times in 2002 that Benjamin Braddock had become, quote, part of a long line of naive, confused, innocent heroes in the coming-of-age tradition of Holden Caulfield, end quote, the angst-filled teen in Catcher in the Rye, one of the most formative books in my life. I must have read that 50 times. Anyway, the film made over $100 million at the box office. Webb got zip because he'd signed everything over. He did publish a half a dozen more novels and then took a 26-year hiatus, which is such a great career move, of course, disappearing for a third of your life. And then he published a book called New Cardiff in 2002, which nobody read, but the book was praised by critics and was actually adapted into the 2012 film Hope Springs with Meryl Streep. And again, Webb gave away all of his earnings. His last novel, Homeschool, was a sequel to The, Grid- the Graduate, and uh, critics pretty much panned it. It was kind of like going back to, to Kill a Mockingbird, you know, leave well enough alone. Webb had been born in San Francisco in 1939. He was from a huge, rich family, and uh, he lived off a writing grant when he first started and spent a couple years in um, a Colorado bowling alley when he wrote The Graduate. And it was largely largely a mirror of his own life. Anyway, over the years, he moved all the time, bungalows in West Hollywood. Um, but he found owning the place, quote-unquote, unexplainably oppressive. And just ask the realtor to give it to someone else. So every time he acquired something, whether it was a three-story house in Massachusetts, which he tired of after a couple of weeks and gave to the Audubon Society, or another in upstate New York, which he gave away... Um, He just couldn't keep possessions. 
It was almost like he was so anti-possession. He lived in a VW bus. He sheltered in a campground. They moved to a nudist colony, he and his wife, in the south of France. It's just this amazing story. And to me, it's really almost a mirror of the Nicolas Cage film, Leaving Las Vegas, except turned upside down with ascent and transmogrification rather than descent in a turn towards death. Because in Leaving Las Vegas, all Nicolas Cage did was looking for love and looking to love himself and drinking himself to death, where this guy, Webb, was simply looking for centering, looking for, looking for grace, and he found possessions did not make it. And having grown up in a quite wealthy family, uh, possessions were anathema to him. You'd think he would be a very dark, depressed kind of guy, but everybody found him to be remarkably sunny and upbeat. And if you look at the photo of him in the show notes, he, he looks like a young, hopeful Sam Shepard. Looks like the type of guy you would just love to have spent a couple of minutes or a couple hours with, because he would have been almost the perfection of humanity, where it wasn't about achievement or wasn't about collecting things, but just about experiences. I guess once asked about his curious life, Webb just shrugged. Quote, people in the arts are not allowed to lead normal lives, he said. They either have to be super rich, thinking about their mansions, or penniless like me. But they're not allowed to lead lives like everyone else. I think that's partially true. But I think my life in the arts, while not achieving the success of anything like The Graduate, of course, but nor running a nudist colony or living on the grift for dozens of years in a Volkswagen. I think that uh, I've been very, very blessed to live a relatively normal life. Many struggles at times, many successes, but those were all moderate and centered for me. I never got the uh, never got the brass ring, so to speak, but nor did I get the bottom line degradation. I think that Webb was looking for that center, but he just never was able to find it. Anyway, once again, shout out to Steve Marble from the LA Times for a beautiful obituary. And I watched The Graduate again last night late um, after reading this and really thinking about it the past few days. What a powerful film. What an amazing group of actors. And the song Mrs. Robinson from Simon and Garfunkel, which defined a generation. Rest in peace, Charles Webb. Now, segueing from a sad death of a wonderful author who lived a most enigmatic life, um, we are going to talk about some people who probably do need to die for their behavior, and that is the increasingly ridiculously cruel, shameless, moronic cancel culture that has grown on social media. And I'm calling from an article by someone I absolutely love to read. His name is Jeff Jacoby. And guess where? The Boston Globe. I do love the Boston Globe, as you all know. I resonate with it, even though it's a little bit left-wing for me. The writing from almost everyone there is so fantastic. I do pick up a lot of articles there. And Jeff Jacoby is fantastic. You should definitely read him. Anyway, in his series, Arguable, he talks about the racial Jacobins who haven't eased up in their post-George Floyd ferocity. And as you know, none of these riots or protests where Black Lives Matter or anything has anything to do with George Floyd anymore. That lasted about three seconds, because right now it is about the ascension of power and the denigration of those that have it. In short, and I will be short because I don't want to dwell on it. As we grow up, you, ha you ascend to power three ways. You are either inherited it, much like the king or queen of England or Spain. You know, you, you're in line. You inherit it. Or you're elected, like President Bush, President Obama, President Trump, Boris Johnson, Scott Morrison here in Australia. Or you steal it. That is how you attain power. Another way to achieve power, but without attaining it, is with threats and intimidation. 
And unfortunately, that is what is going on, especially in the United States right now, but also in the U.S., also in the U.K. and Australia, by groups such as Black Lives Matter, such as Antifa, many that are so threatening and taking power by intimidation, such that companies are scared to tweet anything, to say anything, to do anything, lest they get piled on on social media. And if you are scared of someone, they have the power over you. Consequently, Whole Foods in California sent some workers home who were wearing Black Lives Matter face masks because they didn't want anything political for their customers. Well, you can imagine the protest and the you know, terror that came after that with a lot of people threatening to burn down uh, Whole Foods like they'd burn down Wendy's and pulled down statues and a bunch of other places. But imagine the angst if someone had worn a Make America Great hat into the store who probably would have been shot in the store. Retail stores are no place for politics. If you have a job, you're surrendering your politics to that employer so that they pay you, you work, and you don't purvey your politics to anyone or your causes or your sexual preferences or, or whatever. You're there to work. Actually, you know the beauty of a job in a uniform? It's the one time we're all equal and there's no prejudice for eight hours a day based on an eight-hour shift. We're all wearing the same clothes. We're all working for the same cause. And we're not putting our shit on people. How beautiful is that? So there is a certain singularity and transitional equality to all that. So by forcing companies to allow employees to wear um, Black Lives Matter or Trump or, or anything else, LGBTQS, XYZ, whatever, you are trying to take power from your employer. You are trying to be the one in charge. And that is simply trying to assert power or stealing it or taking it. It's very simple. And regrettably, in my opinion, that is what is exactly happening on a shock troop level in the U.S. right now as company after company, house after house, individual after individual are threatened for their beliefs, for what they wear, for who they support, such that right now in the U.S., if you don't support Black Lives Matters or say you don't or that you support the president, that you live in fear of people torching your house or torching your car. Who would put a Trump bumper sticker on their car these days without fear of their their house or their or their car being torched? I wouldn't even on a podcast suggest anyone saying, "Oh, I'll be having dinner tonight at Sizzler on 106 42nd Street in Minneapolis um, to talk about the GOP party." Well, you know, the restaurant would be burned. So that fear subjugates those in power and actually those that intimidate have the power and that is completely wrong it is un-american it is unconstitutional um, and it takes away from really all of what citizenship and civilization is which is elections and voting so if you don't have power what you should do is vote and get someone that you do support in power or run for office yourself and try and change things not threaten or intimidate. Well, Jeff Jacoby has gone into a great bit of detail here with an amazing story about a young man named Emmanuel Cafferty. Now, he's a Hispanic employee, former employee of San Diego Gas and Electric, who was fired for making a quote-unquote white supremacist gesture while driving his company-issued truck. Except one big massive problem. He wasn't making any gesture at all. And he didn't even know that such a symbol existed. As reported by San Diego's NBC affiliate, it all started about two weeks ago near a Black Lives Matter rally in Poway, California, when Emmanuel Cafferty, a San Diego gas and electric employee, encountered a stranger on the roadway. The stranger followed Cafferty and took a picture of him as his arm hung out the window of his company truck. The picture made the rounds on Twitter, I saw it myself, accompanied by a claim that Cafferty was making a, quote, white power, unquote, hand gesture made popular by white supremacist groups. Now, according to the Anti-Defamation League, that's the same league that the late Charles Webb donated all of his copyrighted money to from The Graduate in the previous article, so a bit of irony there. According to the Anti-Defamation League, the gesture made by forming a circle 
with the thumb and index finger and extending and separating the other three fingers has been used in recent years by white supremacists to form the letters W and P, as in white power, but has also long been used for hundreds of years as a sign signifying okay. I use it all the time. My wife says, we take the garbage out, put that up, okay. Therefore, it shouldn't be assumed to be a white supremacy symbol unless there is other evidence to support those claims. And according to the ADL, Cafferty claims he was just cracking his knuckles. Soon after the encounter, Cafferty's supervisor told him, you're suspended and further action may be taken after an investigation. A few days later, he said he was fired. Now, what's amazing about this is Cafferty was astonished when his employer even told him he'd been accused and found guilty of it. Not only had he been denounced and fired for a supposedly racist act, his judge, jury, and executioner were all white. And he isn't. He's Hispanic. Cafferty said he explained to them he had no idea that racists had tried to appropriate the OK sign for their sinister purposes. He wasn't interested in politics himself. As far as he remembered, he'd never even voted in a single election. And he said, I got so desperate, I was showing them the color of my skin, going, hey, look at me, look at the color of my skin. Well, all to no avail, San Diego Gas and Electric never presented him with any evidence, and yet he was terminated. Meanwhile, the dickhead that took the picture of Cafferty's fingers deleted his tweet, I'd love to mention his name, but for legal purposes, I won't, because if anyone deserves a pylon, it's this guy. The guy took the picture of Cafferty's fingers, deleted the tweet, and admitted he may have, quote, misinterpreted what he saw, and said he never intended for Cafferty to lose his job. What a load of crap. He moved that tweet around and retweeted it about 11 billion times. But these days, the merest suggestion that someone is a bigot or insufficiently anti-racist can trigger the instantaneous destruction of his or her reputation, career, and income. Quote from Jeff Jacoby. Unbelievable. There's dozens of other cases. To name just a couple of the most infamous, there is an attack on a middle-aged woman named Sue Schaefer who attended a Halloween party in 2018. Wearing blackface and a tag reading, Hello, my name is Megan Kelly. It was a mocking reference to the former TV host who ran into a buzzsaw after she suggested that wearing blackface wasn't always racist or in bad taste. Now, the two young women at the party in question who approached Schaefer, who was not famous, not running for office, not influential, and tore her apart for her costume. She left the party in tears. Now, that was two years ago. That would have been the end of it, except the Washington Post the most oily rag of journalism of nothingness that exists in the world today, for no discernible reason ran a 3,000-word article about the incident this month, a couple of years later. A story, it's devoid of news value, about a clueless woman at a party two years ago. Well, as soon as that story appeared, Schaefer was fired by her employer. Thank you, Washington Post. I could go on for hours with dozens and dozens of other cases, and including, you know, a teen, a young African-American teen who used to be on the Disney Channel who said that send me anything that looks racist and I'll retweet it and we will out them and we will dox them, meaning we'll send them their home address and their car license and everything else to just destroy them. So that that is the power of Twitter. That is the power of the cancel culture. And I guess the irony is 66 years ago this month, this month, 66 years most of you won't remember. Most of the millennials will not have even read the history books and know who Senator Joseph McCarthy was, the Wisconsin senator. There is a harbinger of, you know, Wisconsin politicians. Um, that one's from my friend Jim Morgenstern. Wisconsin's famous for this. It was 66 years ago this month the tide began to turn against Joseph McCarthy, McCarthy who was the Wisconsin senator whose anti-communist crusade was marked by an absolute commitment to blow up reputations and shred careers, hence the blacklist for Hollywood. And there came a moment during McCarthy's televised hearings on supposed communist influence in the U.S. Army 
where he singled out a young Boston lawyer who was, in his opinion, a secret communist and a security threat. Now, Joseph Welch, a Boston attorney who served as chief counsel for the Army, seized on McCarthy's smear to turn the tables. Quote, Until this moment, Senator, I think I've never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness, Welch said. He praised the young lawyer who had been slandered, then rebuked McCarthy with words that still resonate. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? And like Jeff Jacoby said in closing in his article, I couldn't have put it better. What has been done to Cafferty and Shore and many others with this cancel culture is so disgusting, it's stomach-turning. Have those who target such powerless people individuals just trying to make it through life have no sense of decency? At long last have they left no sense of decency. Now, in questo momento, vorrei ringraziare i miei amici di Duolingo per aver ripristinato la mia serie di compliani. At this time, I'd like to thank my friends at Duolingo, which is where I'm learning Italian, for reinstating my birthday streak. I had a 153-day streak of learning Italian every day, unbroken. And then we changed over our internet this last week on Tuesday to what we call the NBN, uh, which is the new, you know, archaic 1980s fiber network, which Australia has spent $70 bazillion on which was, you know, outdated eight seconds after they started it. But that's what we got. No more ADSL, no more, you know, blah, 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 ginger, other than upcoming 5G, which, you know, 11 people think will give you cancer or is run by the Russians or the Chinese. But the fear was that nobody that ever got NBN ever got it right. And we've been waiting four years, four years to get the service here. They finally came and they put it in. And it was seamless. And what happened, though, is that I lost my Duolingo streak because I was using a different server. And I went mad. 153 days of doing this every morning when I wake up. And I tweeted Duolingo and pled. It's my upcoming birthday. I was looking forward to the streak. I love you. I've called you out before, as you know. And they reinstated my streak. Now, that is the power of good on Twitter. There's not much left when you can contact someone directly. So, grazie mia, Duolingo. If you're going to learn a language, Duolingo is the app. It's free, and it's got a few ads. You can get through the ads, or you can do the premium thing without the ads, but it's amazing. It is amazing. I, I could go to Italy tomorrow. I can't even go downtown tomorrow because everything's so locked off here in Victoria. But I could go to Italy, and I could you know just blend right now totally blend. Now, one thing I'd like to mention, you might have heard me slip in Lake Okaboji early in the podcast. During my birthday celebrations as a child, you know, I would have some of the usual suspects of Phil Kalen, uh, Molly Magoon, and Janet Levitt, and, uh, you know, some of the other people in the immediate neighborhood, Chuck Kutcher, the late Chuck Kutcher, and, uh, a lot of others were at Lake Okoboji. Now, Lake Okoboji was about 90 miles away, which is, you know, may as well have been in, you know, Vladivostok when you were a kid because you're at the mercy of your parents. But it was where Arnold's Park was. It was like the local um, pseudo-highbrow. I thought it was highbrow as a child, but it was probably a toilet. But it was the um, park, you know, with roller coasters and, you know, all kinds of cool things that you just absolutely are enamored by when you're a kid. But it was about 90 miles away, hour and a half, two hours away. And Lake Okoboji was also where we'd go to go fishing. I used to love to go fishing right off the end of the dock. And Lake Okoboji, interestingly enough, is where I had my first assault. No, I wasn't the victim. I was the perp. My brother was fishing with my dad, and my dad wouldn't let me use his new rod and reel because I had actually caught something earlier, and it had pulled me in the water 
And literally, he dove in to save the rod and reel and let me flounder around like, you know, Mary Jo Kopechny trying to get to the surface um, while he saved the rod and reel. And then, and then he pulled me out. So I was banned from fishing with him after that. So I did the next most logical thing. I picked up big rocks from the edge of the beach. It's a lake, not an ocean, but a lake. And it had big jagged rocks. And I would just throw them in the water trying to skip them or make big splashes. In one afternoon, one sunny afternoon in 1961, I was eight, I picked up a huge rock and almost with Olympian, Olympian skill, threw it and it just went out and out and out. And while it was still in the air, almost hanging there like an early Michael Jordan hang time situation, what came out of the water but was a man a man who had been underneath the water unbeknownst to me. And lo and behold, as he came up, the rock hit him square on the forehead. And even though I hadn't taken physics yet, nor would I actually elect to take physics when I was in high school, but I wasn't eligible at age eight, I did know that two objects cannot occupy the same space in time concurrently. And thus the rock smashed this guy and he went down and blood gathered all over the surface of the water. Well, I did the honorable, absolutely smart and well-thought-out thing. I ran and didn't tell anybody. Why would I? Should he survive, he'd go to a doctor. And if he didn't, I didn't want to be responsible for the death of someone that shouldn't have been underwater while I was throwing rocks. Anyway, it turned out that his wife had been on the beach, seen the whole thing, and had then later on approached my dad, and unbeknownst to me, he'd gone to the hospital, had some stitches and stuff like that. Anyway, a beautiful story. About 20 years later, I was back in Iowa, in Sioux City, at a dinner. I had just come back for a brief stint, and uh, had my son, late son Chris with me, and my newborn Stevie. It's about 1981. And a man came up to my father, who was dining with us and my mom at at a restaurant, uh, the first edition, which is no longer there. And he had a huge scar on his forehead. He looked really weird. And he came up to my dad and shook his hand, and my dad said, do I know you? And he pointed to his forehead, and he said, Okaboji, 1961. And strangely enough, he had remembered my dad, and he looked over at me, and he said, are you the young boy that threw this rock? And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I pulled full OJ, deny, deny, deny. And he smiled and he went back to his table. But that was the guy marked for life. I feel good when I tell that story. I really hate that he kind of came up to spoil our dinner put my dad on the spot and put me on the spot too. Very uncouth, very untoward. Not only stupid to be underneath the water when kids are throwing jagged rocks at Lake Okoboji. You know, this wasn't, you know, like the Great Barrier Reef where you were diving, but then 28 years later, the, you know, whatever, come up and spoil our dinner. God, unbelievable. Now, a little bit of good news, as you probably know, and I said it way back in the early podcast, I said, mark my words, General Flynn will be found innocent, and the case will be dropped by the Department of Justice. And just a few days ago, as many of you that follow this know that General Flynn is now off the hook. The case has been dropped, and they have found incredible, incredible, clear, documented evidence that he was set up by, yes, the former president, and the FBI through James Comey and the CIA spying, spying on a domestic citizen, spying on the Trump administration. It's all there in black and white, no supposition, no opinion. That is the fact. So you just wait and see what's going to be coming out in the next few weeks. I said you'd see it here first, and here it is. I cannot believe what General Flynn had to go through and the absolute destruction of his career and his family with false accusations. What could be 
worse. And that is why I also feel that unless there's a bit of a miracle in the next few months and we can find some peace in the world, that it's going to get so hot and so side versus side, spy versus spy, we'll all be forced to choose a side. Won't be able to sit there and go, oh, I'm staying neutral on this. We're going to have to choose sides. So do you want to be on the right side of right? Or do you want to be on the wrong side of right? Have a think. And we'll be pursuing more of that as the months go through. But, as I said, I don't like to dwell on those things, but you know that that's part of this podcast. That's why it's called The Way It Is, because you get the facts, and you get my opinions, and then you can do what you like with them. Unfiltered, non-PC. And so enjoyable, too. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Yes, and time once again for one of our favorite segments. What is your podcaster wearing? And it is that ass-kicking outfit. I do like basic black. And uh, that kind of Johnny Cash darkness look. Also, Melburnians tend to favor that black. It's very New York here. And I did say a minute ago we wouldn't be able to stay neutral. Wouldn't be able to stay neutral like the Swiss on many political things. And uh, that ham-handedly but yet sleekly segues us to my shoes, which are Swiss, which uh, I'm wearing some Bally boots, some Bally waterproof boots. Bally has been around since 1851. Swiss, a very Swiss neutral company, um, founded by Carl and Fritz Bally, two brothers who were obsessed, obsessed with making shoes that were as perfect as could be and as comfortable as could be. And um, I do have size 13 U.S. feet, and I've had several operations on them and my toes and stuff like that. So my feet are always a drama, and these shoes are so comfortable. And then moving up, we're in black leathers from Diesel, which uh, is a pretty well-known Italian manufacturer. Uh, They also own... Marnie and Maison Margiela, two of my favorite designers. Um, two friends that got together, and uh, in fact, Diesel was the label about 10 years ago. They've suffered financially. They're not really expensive. They're mostly known for denim. Very, very groovy. And um, up to a uh, black velvet shirt from Saturday's New York City, which won the GQ Best New Menswear designers in 2016. Three friends that used to work with The Gap and um, manufacturing and uh, design agencies that got together with one store in Soho in New York and have grown into a huge label. Very low priced, very low to medium priced, but really, really trendy and groovy. And the reason I'm all in black is that uh, a little bit of transparency here. This is actually what I wore yesterday when we drove up to Mount Macedon for a bit of a pre-birthday bite to eat. Mount Macedon's about 70 kilometers away. It's about an hour away, northwest of Melbourne. And one of the attractions of Mount Macedon, as we segue from fashion a bit to geography, is um, a 21-meter-high, that's 69 feet, giant memorial cross, which stands near the summit of the mountain. It's suddenly quite a bit of elevation getting outside of Melbourne, so it gets pretty cold up there. It was minus two degrees centigrade. There was frost on the pumpkin, so to speak. And that structure was established by early resident William Cameron in 1935 as a memorial to those who died in World War I. And you can see a picture of it in the show notes. And it looks strangely similar to the big cross or Jesus cross in uh, Rio de Janeiro. Although being Australian, it's not as groovy. That's not being self-deprecating at all. It's just um, being very Australian. Uh, This is a place where giant pineapples, the big pineapple, the big prawn, the big merino sheep are huge, huge architectural landmarks. That gives you a good idea of Australian tourism right now, which is the only tourism I have and my wife have because we can't leave. We can't even go to Queensland, which is like the Florida of Australia, because uh, the borders are closed. And New South Wales is closed, and there's hot spots, postcodes, suburbs that are closed in Melbourne 
where they'll jail you if you leave the suburb and try and cross the state line. I'm serious as cancer. That's, that's what's happening right now. And we all know what that sound means. Actually, you don't, because you've never heard it before on this show. But that means we have the winner of the first semi-bi-quad annual, maybe never to be repeated, but was a good idea at least a month ago. How do you listen to Bobby podcast selfie photo contest? And our thousands and thousands of staff headed by the boss, my wife, and Stefan the cat have made a decision, and the winner is... Susan Slotsky-Schwartz, all the way from the Bravos Valley, the high desert of College Station, Texas. Now, Susan's picture was chosen because it actually evoked such a wild cinema memory of me because of the FedEx truck kind of going off the distance behind her while she was listening. And uh, it reminded me of the Tom Hanks film Castaway, that beautiful ending when he's rescued and he comes to the crossroads in his FedEx truck and he doesn't know which way to go, the road less traveled or the difficult road. And uh, we appreciate those of you that sent in your photos and enter the contest. And Susan will receive via email a $25 Amazon voucher. Now, that is symbolic of our play the man, not the ball, because Jeff Bezos is definitely a weird cat. And he owns the Washington Post, the worst newspaper in the world of fake news. And he's a bit of a slave driver with his employees at Amazon. But we just love Amazon products and we love his entrepreneurship and everything else he does. So we're going to appreciate some of the good and the ease of which we can transfer this over. And Susan, you can uh, spend it on anything you like. You can even buy a U.S. version of Prey. Uh, which was released as Dream Times Over, and, you know, play it over and over and over and over again. Enjoy. Now, just a bit of a tidbit I'd like you to think about for uh, one of our key stories next week is a recent poll which was published in the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal is one of those last few actual real news publications that uh, isn't affected by politics. It kind of tells it the way it is and has some real journalists I mean, talk about you had one job, and that's to report the news, not create a story. And they just did a poll, and amazingly, it's about who is the most trusted group and corporations and individuals in the United States. And the least trusted people in the U.S., actually even below Congress, below Congress, are journalists, the, the news, the mainstream news. There's something for you to think about. Quick shout out to some supporters and friends. David Oopfall, architect extraordinaire. James Harvey, model actor extraordinaire. And new friend, Andrew Smith, the hedge fund guy who I saw playing tennis today. Next week, it's all the things you love. And we're going to talk about movie soundtracks. In the background is Fiona Apple's amazing cover of the original 1985 Waterboys song, The Hole of the Moon, which has some of my favorite lyrics of all time. Look up the lyrics for The Hole of the Moon, talking about regret and admiration, uh, because I think soundtracks really bring us back to those amazing memories and images in film that I love so much and why I still do love film so much. We'll be reviewing the McDonald's McMillions series and the UK quiz series called Quiz. How statues get pulled down, how U.S. senators are letting any statue come down, even abolitionists. Abolitionists meaning people who wanted to abolish slavery. And so statues of those are being pulled down. So you think, why would somebody want to pull down a statue? for Black Lives Matter or anyone or someone who wanted to abolish slavery. Well, there's a lot of a power play behind it. We'll be talking about that too. And we're going to have some very uplifting stories next week. It's a new financial year for those of you in the UK and here in Australia. Um, 
Spring will be springing down here. Six months till Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and all of that. And uh, I hope that we can really turn the corner and have a couple of miracles and have something really wondrous and peaceful come our way. I really do. I keep saying the Civil War is coming, and I think it is, but it's like a Cold War. We do not want a hot war. We do not want people in the streets, you know, killing each other like a proper Civil War. So I will still hold out for the beauty of love and peace and magic, because I think it's going to take a bit of magic. I was just reading a great quote. It really goes out to my American friends. I was once told, if we're not careful, 2% of the passionate will control 98% of the indifferent 100% of the time. The more I've thought about this phrase, the more I believe it, because right now there's a very small group of passionate people working hard to destroy our way of life. And treason and treachery are rampant, and our rule of law and those law enforcement professionals who uphold our laws are under the gun more than any other time in history. Those passionate 2%, sadly, appear to be winning. Which leads me to the other side of the coin. Because I know we only have two lives. The second one started when we realized we just have one. So, that's important. And it's nice to be important or feel important. But it's way more important to be nice. Have a beautiful, epic week. Later.